Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Pleasure to be here with Rabbi Dr. Mark Shapiro, who holds the Weinberg Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Scranton, a graduate of Brandeis for his BA and Harvard for PhD. He's the author of numerous books, all of which I've enjoyed very much, articles and reviews. He's written Between the Yeshiva World and Modern Orthodoxy and the Limits of Orthodox Theology, which many have told me really transformed their worldviews, um, and both of which were National Jewish Book Award finalists. His latest book, our topic today, is Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. And he's currently writing a book on the thought of Rav Cook. Ah, I've got a Rav Cook picture right there. You didn't see it. Uh, and regularly publishes scholarly articles on the Sephardim blog. Thanks for taking time to talk. Glad to be here. So on the topic of this book, Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History, why did you write this? Well, I... I'm very, first of all, very interested in the history of the Jewish book, uh, three areas in particular, forgeries, plagiarisms, and censorship. So I don't know if we're going to get to the books on the other two, but that was the first one I was censoring, because I, I noticed an interesting phenomenon over the years, that censorship in canonical texts, I'm not referring to, let's say, censorship, which we know, has a long history of non-Jews censoring Jewish texts, but of Jews censoring their own texts. And on the face of it, it's quite shocking because uh, why would people be censoring standard works? I'm not talking about heretical texts or anything like that. Uh, on the other hand, it makes a certain amount of sense because uh, there's a dissonance that's often created when there's a worldview that's advocated and assumed to be authoritative. And yet if you look at older texts written by pious figures of the past, they present a, an alternate viewpoint. So that's scholars can understand that times change, there's differences, but for the masses, this creates a dissonance. And the way to, um, I guess, solve that problem has been to take these texts out of the public eye. But it shows you just how much of this has been going on and continues to go on. What are some of the most profound or influential examples where uh, there's censorship or even alteration of truth uh, that is done, uh, you know, as you said, to protect, sort of protect religious masses. In the book, I have a number of different uh, categories. I do them by chapters. Ironically, I think um, the most significant, if I would surprise to mention it today, I really didn't even discuss in the book, although I mentioned it like on the first page, but uh, it continues to go strong. And that is the removal of women's pictures and uh, from the public eye. This is a, a completely new phenomenon which I really, if I had to do the book now, just a few years later, I would uh, 
include a whole chapter on it because this is something that is a complete reversal of what was done in the most uh, right-wing communities. Uh, so that, I think, is quite profound, removing women who are such an important part of the Jewish community from the public eye. And yet I can show texts, uh, you know, right-wing, Hasidic texts, that proudly showed pictures of the great Rebbitsons of the past. And this isn't, it isn't just a question of removing the pictures. It's all about removing women as having significance in the public sphere in a way that uh, we didn't see in previous years. The other important aspect, I think, or one of the most important, relates to Zionism. You know, we just uh, celebrated Yom Matzmaut, and uh, today in the Haredi world, uh, there's a very negative view uh, towards Zionism, towards uh, views of Rav Kook, not necessarily the person, although that you find as well. Um, and yet, um, in his time, Rav Kook was respected as the rabbi of Jerusalem by most of the traditional Jews. In fact, the Lithuanian world almost exclusively looked towards him as their rabbi. Many of the great rabbis uh, were supporters of Zion, at least the state declared positively about it. Today, that makes for uncomfortable readings. So there's a lot in the way of rewriting of the past in that respect. And uh, that's had enormous impact um, on broad you know, stretches of uh, the Orthodox society, including influencing into the more modern Orthodox society. So, so I, you know, those are two of the big ones. These, these more extreme measures of modesty and, and, modesty and censoring women, um, when would you date that to really gaining steam? Um, and, um, and, and why do you think that's become so prevalent in Orthodox circles today? Now, you always had uh, extreme views like this, although I have to point out that if you go to the Eda uh, Haridit, you know, Satmar-type newspapers from the 50s, you have pictures of women in it. It seems to be like the last 15 years, uh, and uh, I'm not sure whether it's come out, started in Israel or in America, apparently in Israel, from never was an order by any great rabbis uh, to change the policies in the newspaper. This is actually, we can document this uh, very clearly. I think uh, there's probably two elements for this. One is with the increasing uh, sexuality of the street, when uh, there's, there's so much in public view on uh, billboards and all over, this has led to a, uh, a natural reaction, uh, a more puritanical reaction uh, to try to remove women entirely. Of course, the big issue with this is if... Uh, if looking at a woman's picture, you know, uh, in, entices men and drives them to all sorts of sexual fantasies, then as we say, Talmudically, Kavahomer, all the more so, the live face would do that even more. This, so this leads inexorably to this phenomenon that women should be covered, as you have in Israel, this, the, the Taliban women, where they walk around with, uh, you know, their face completely covered. Of course, that hasn't happened. And the rabbis have spoken against this because that's a, a, a brief bar or uh, it wasn't something they instituted. I'm not sure, but it, logically, it makes no sense. If you can't look at a woman's picture in a newspaper, certainly there should be a problem looking at a woman's face. The other element is, I, I don't think you can remove this from the fact that uh, women have become more important in the workforce, in society at large, and I do think that that's threatening uh, for a number of people, they're worried about this entering into the religious realm, and therefore, uh, you know, the removal of women isn't just in the pictures. You'll see if you read the Haredi papers now, they won't even say Mr. Miss, they won't even mention the name of the bride. They won't mention the wife's name. It's all about, uh, in a sense, keeping the woman firmly in a, you know, behind her husband in a, in a role where she's neither seen nor heard. Wow. Okay. So, um, it, do you do you think there is some form of religious imperative or even just a value to prioritizing truth over censorship? 
And and who do you think best articulate this view? You know, I think one of the novelties, perhaps, of the book was that I showed, uh, contrary to what many people assumed, that there actually a great deal of support can be brought from earlier sources to support altering of the past for the needs of the present. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean censorship. That means presenting a false version of the past. But really, it doesn't seem like it's uh, too far away. Although I would say that the sources in the other direction are much more. Uh, I wasn't trying to prove the point, make the argument. I just That's why I didn't really argue this. Uh, it's obvious there's numerous texts that speak about the value of truth. And the very notion that I could tell a text, a text that doesn't belong to me, and I could alter it. You know, I could do that to my own work, but the idea that I could alter someone else's text uh, that violates all sorts of uh, restrictions on uh, intellectual property and Rabbeinu Tam, uh, famously put a chayrim on people who would alter the text, alter the text of the Talmud and would apply to other texts as well because they thought they knew better. Now, he was referring to people who thought that there was a mistake in the text, but uh, all the more so if you think that you know better than the person who wrote it. After all, the Talmud tells us that the Talmud, the seal of God is truth. Uh, it tells us, uh, it speaks negatively about liars. Censorship and covering up the, what the great rabbis of the past said and twisting what they said, I think has to be put into uh, this category. And if I could just give in a, a way that it was put, I think, uh, very beautifully by Rabbi Nathan Kamenetsky in uh, the introduction to his um, volume, uh, Tuvalu, which he wanted to write a story of, the story of his father, but also of the great rabbis of the past. He said that uh, the ultimate disrespect to the rabbis of the past is by censoring and distorting who they were. Why is that? Because um, take, he says, a certain great rabbi who maybe had a, a temper problem or something. He still was a great man, but uh, he wasn't perfect. And Kamenetsky wants to discuss that aspect. Those people who will rewrite the history and make it seem as if he didn't ever had a temper or that he opposed Zionism, what they're basically saying is that they don't respect these rabbis. Because if they respected him, they respect him even though he was a Zionist. But they can only respect the ones who they create, their own the ones that they fashion. So what is the greatest disrespect? It's saying that these rabbis, we don't really respect them who they are. We only will keep them in our canon if we present a false portrait of them. And as he concludes, that is the greatest disrespect uh, and a violation of the tradition of how wow. we have to work with wow. wow. So is there any case where, um, is there any case where you would think that censorship would be a value? Meaning we know there's a, a tension in the, in the Masora between Shalom and Emmet. Is there any case where you would say, actually there, I can see why they did this and this made sense. Or do you think there's a sort of a, a, a really a pinnacle value of truth here that should always be honored? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, truth, um, I, I do believe, as Maimonides said, that there could be different truths for different people. And not every, first of all, not everyone is able to understand every aspect. Ruff Cook writes uh, that uh, even if you know something is true, if you think it'll negatively affect someone's, he's referring to someone's faith, uh, you, don't, you should not share it with them. That is, not everyone needs to be exposed to all the truths. We all know, as you mentioned, that there are certain values even more important than truth not hurting people's feelings. Of course, that opens the Pandora's box because the censors assume that they want to hide the fact that Rabbi X was a Zionist because it hurt people's faith because then it can become a Zionist. So it's it's very tricky to know where to draw the line. We, and it's even considered from a scholarly perspective acceptable that certain truths don't need to be revealed today. I mean, it's standard practice to keep files sealed for 50 years until the people are no longer alive. So I, I can't, you know, I, my book raised more questions, I think, than answers. I think we can all agree 
that at certain times, not all the truths need to be known. For example, when you write a biography, as I've done, you uncover all sorts of material. Does that mean that, you know, what's the difference between a biography and voyeurism? Does that mean that every element needs to be included? So you, the, the author needs to figure out what is considered essential and what's not. And uh, it is tricky. And there will be times when uh, there'll be debates between people and uh, you can come down on different sides. However, once an author already publishes his text and then you reprint it and choose for reasons of your own, shows that you know the author, you say the balabas, you control the author. That certainly is a different level of uh, prevarication and audacity, you know, than we've been speaking about. Great, great. Okay, my last question for you. Um, you mentioned that you're writing, um, or it says in your bio here that you're writing on Rav Cook right now. Can you share a little bit about what approach you're taking? Yes, I mean, people might be wondering, what about Rav Cook? There's been so many books about Rav Cook. You can have uh, college courses. You can study him for a long time and, uh, you know, hardly uh, begin to cover everything that's been written about him. However, we've been very fortunate that in the last 15, 15 to 20 years, including just this year and last year, new writings of his have appeared. For the first time, we see the Shmona Kvatsim, the his notebooks in which the standard texts uh, that we know are wrote, etc., were written. And we could see the sorts of uh, editing, even censorship in that text. And numerous new works have appeared in recent years. And this is really causing us to reevaluate texts that we never saw earlier. We can understand, for example, that Svi Yehuda, his son, was not very comfortable with Rav Kook's Hasidic side. He wanted a much more of a Litvish type of Rosh Hashiva. So that was taken out. Uh, we see elements, uh, for example, where Rav Kook valorizes the masses. Let me mention just one passage to show you how subversive and uh, explosive this sort of stuff could be, which explains why he was censored. Rav Cook writes about how when it comes to pure morality, that is found among the masses, the simple, pious Jewish masses, not among the rabbis who, because of their great Talmudic learning, can twist things in all sorts of different directions. He says the, the masses need the rabbis to tell them what the Jewish law is, but the rabbis need the masses because they have the sense of what true Jewish morality is. So he privileges the masses over the rabbis for what he calls a Musar TV, a natural morality that comes from living a Jewish life. I mean, this is a sort of a you know, very provocative and almost subversive sort of comment. I really brought out uh, our picture of who Rav Cook was. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rabbi Dr. Mar Shapiro. Make sure to pick up his wonderful books, uh, in Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. Also a wonderful scholar and residence to welcome to your community. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.